Freedom of speech is an idea we all naturally gravitate towards. Who would want to live in a society where certain types of speech were outlawed or regulated, or where we had to watch what we say at every turn? Yet liberals would readily admit that free speech is not absolute, and they have recognised the need to police and censure some speech that could undermine the virtues they want society to embrace. It is not uncommon to find within Western societies libel laws, the censure of the press, and moral boundaries that all contribute to the narrowing of speech, whether through law or through society. Recently, freedom of speech has been subject to intense debate. Here in Britain, a free speech warrior, Toby Young, has established a free speech union. That rails against the shutdown of opinions in society, and specifically university campuses. He and others like him on both sides of the Atlantic believe progressivism has ignited a new Puritan assault on freedom, ready to ban speakers on campus and take offence. What they call a new cancel culture has narrowed discussion at the detriment of progress. Certainly, modern liberal societies are plagued with these culture wars and are likely to intensify in years to come. But of course, Muslims also have a conundrum when it comes to free speech. On the one hand, we suffer from the constant barrage of abuse that comes our way. The repulsive cartoons against the Prophet ﷺ were disguised with the caveat that we are the problem and that we must learn to tolerate others. But on the other hand, We also see our own speech curtailed in our masjids and community centres, and we often call upon the wider society to respect our freedoms. So, how do we understand this idea, and where does Islam stand on free speech? To understand this subject further, I've invited Hamza Zortzes to the Thinking Muslim podcast to break down this idea and to give us an Islamic perspective. Hamza Andreas Zortzes is the author of the Divine Reality: God, Islam, and the Mirage of Atheism. He is a public speaker, instructor, and essayist, and a founding member of the Sapiens Institute. My conversation with Hamza is extensive, and we cover a lot of ground. As always, you can comment on our website, thinkingmuslim.com. Some of you have been asking about a more detailed course on liberalism. Inshallah, that's to come. Please sign up to our mailing list found in the description of this program. Rabbi Hamza, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Wa alaikum assalam, rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Pray your Lord, Zakhlahi, for having me. Now, Jazakallah Khair, thank you for coming on to our show to talk about this really important subject, freedom of speech. And uh, I want to tap into your extensive knowledge about this issue and and uh, your philosophical understanding of the subject and where freedom comes from and how we as Muslims should approach uh, the subject of freedom of speech. But I suppose the first place to start, Brother Hamza, is uh, the Islamic perspective. What does Islam say about freedom of speech? Okay, Bismillah. That's a very good question. Now, from the perspective of popular culture. From a colloquial perspective, when we think of freedom, we think you can do whatever you want. From that perspective, Muslims reject this idea because our worldview is that we don't do whatever we want; we do whatever Allah wants, and that's why to be a Muslim is not just a label; it's not a kind of definition of a ethnocentric cult, right, or a label for a type of cult, but rather. 
it's a state of being. A Muslim is someone who submits to the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He submits to the commands of Allah. So we don't agree that you can do whatever you want. This is antithetical to what it means to be a Muslim because a Muslim is to peacefully submit to the will of Allah. And this is not a blind obedience. This is what I would call liberation, true liberation, because what you have realized as a Muslim is that there is a deity that created you that is worthy of your worship, which means he's worthy to be known, to be loved, to be obeyed, and for you to direct all acts of worship to him alone. And he's, and, and if you zoom in on the idea of he's worthy to be obeyed, he's worthy to be obeyed by virtue of who he is. Because Allah is Al-Hakim, Al-Alim, he is the wise, he is the knowing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Bar, he's the source of all goodness. So when he commands something, it's in line with his wisdom, knowledge, and you know, ultimate perfection, his goodness. And we believe Allah is maximally perfect to the highest degree possible. So when Allah commands something, we know it is ultimately good for us in this life and the hereafter. And that's why we peacefully submit to the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this idea of doing what you want just doesn't make sense in, in Islam. So, you know, when I'm told to pray five times a day, yes, it's an expression of my love for Allah. It's an expression for the fact that I want to get close to Allah. It's an expression of you know, my fitrah, my innate disposition that I want to worship Allah and please Allah and connect with my creator. But fundamentally, it's an expression of the fact that I know that Allah is the ultimate authority and he deserves to be obeyed. And I must submit myself to him. And this submission is the peak of intelligence because Allah is the ultimate authority. If you think about it, we submit to people all the time. We submit to doctors, to to pilots when they tell us to sit down because we are, you know, we're going to face some kind of turbulence. Um, you know, we submit to them by virtue of their authority. But Allah is the ultimate authority and we should submit to Allah. Unconditional submission because of who he is, because he is the ultimate authority. So this is something very important for us to understand. And, and what's interesting, that will give us true liberation. Yeah. That will give us true liberation. Why? Because we liberate ourselves from the false submission to other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know? Um, and it's interesting that the word for soul in Islam, in the Quran, is ruh. And the word ruh shares the same root as the word raha, which means ease and liberty or liberation. So it's as if the, the, in, to truly be liberated is to enslave and submit yourself to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which reminds me of a beautiful verse in the Qur'an in chapter 39, verse 29, and I'm paraphrasing. That Allah says in the Qur'an, consider the situation of two people. One man is a servant or a slave to many masters and they're all quarreling, and another man is a slave to one master. Whose condition is best? So Allah is basically trying to say to us, if you don't worship Allah that is worthy of worship, He knows you better than yourself, has more affection for you than your own mother, as per the hadith of the Prophet then, then what happens is, is you're going to be enslaved to all of these other things. And it reminds me also of the famous poet, Iqbal, the poet of the East, when he said, this one prostration you find so difficult frees you from a thousand prostrations. So from a Popular sense, no, we, we reject this. But tell me, Hamza, is that how philosophers in the West define freedom? Um, or do they see freedom of speech in a slightly more complex way? Obviously, you know, being a 
philosophy research student, uh, I, I will talk about this, and it's, it's based on one of my essays on the Sapiens Institute website, which is, well, when you talk about freedom, what are we actually talking about? Because sometimes in our liberal secular context, when, you know, the liberal secular folk, they talk about this, this idea, they have a liberal presupposition, which we cannot really unpack because we, we always think freedom means, you know, not being coerced. Yeah, that's fine. But we need to be a little bit more intelligent when it comes to these ideas. So generally speaking, when we talk about the philosophical idea of freedom, it, it's centered around the idea of the absence of coercion. So to really understand what freedom, freedom means, we need to understand what does coercion actually mean? And there are different accounts of coercion, but I think the most profound conception of coercion is by the political philosopher Alan Wertheimer. He wrote a book called Coercion. And he basically argued that coercion is not only putting someone in a situation where they have an undesirable consequence or they're forced to a certain situation. That's not necessarily coercion because you, you could be caught. Co- that's not necessarily coercion from the point of view that restricts your freedom because he gives some really powerful thought experiments that says, well, you could be coerced and you have no other choice or it gives you an unde- undesirable situation. And yet it doesn't curtail your freedom. And, um, and how does he explain this? So, for example, he says, take, for example, a patient that has to undergo a life saving operation. The medical staff propose that the patient has to undergo surgery to ensure their survival. In order for the surgery to happen, the patient has to sign a consent form. Now, in this context, the patient has no option other than to sign the form. And the consequences of not doing so would lead to an undesirable and untenable situation, which is death. The the patient is, is coerced to sign the consent form from that perspective, right? However... If the situation is understood from the perspective, but it, he's coerced, but it doesn't mean that he's not free. So when you understand this perspective of this scenario from a rights-based approach, the whole problem is solved. Because if the patient has no other reasonable option other than to sign the consent form, he still does so without a violation of his freedom, without true coercion. Why? i tell you why. Because his rights have not been violated. So when you understand this idea and obviously this is a lot to unpack philosophically so i do suggest people read the article on the website sapiens institute website called does islam control freedom but when you say from this perspective you understand that freedom is not just freedom is the absence of coercion and the absence of coercion is that your rights have not been violated okay the question we need to start to ask ourselves is this whose conception of rights For example, are you going to choose a negative conception of rights, a libertarian conception of rights, a positive conception of rights, an Islamic conception of rights? So when you are thinking about freedom, you could logically put it in the following way. Number one, freedom is the absence of coercion. Number two, the absence of coercion is when rights are not violated. Number three, therefore, freedom is when rights are not violated. But what's the assumption here? The assumption here is that you have a particular conception of rights. So you can argue, well, I believe in the libertarian view on rights. Okay, but that becomes a circular argument because you now have to prove that your that your conception of rights are actually true. 
So the question about freedom as a philosophical idea is literally just about if what are rights and if your rights have been violated or not. So from an Islamic perspective, we would say that the, the liberals who believe a, in a libertarian type of uh, uh, freedom or a, a negative rights of freedom or whatever type of freedom they believe in, we would argue if it's not Islamic, then they are actually enslaved. <laughs> For example, a Muslim, we believe a human being his right is to worship Allah, right? If you don't worship Allah, you're denying yourself your rights. So we would argue that, you know, if you have a libertarian conception of freedom um, and, uh, and, and, and you're not following uh, in terms of rights, you have, you have, for example, say, a negative view on rights or a positive view on rights, whatever conception of rights you have, liberal or otherwise, if it's not Islamic, then by definition, you're not free. So Hamza, let me understand this. Um... Your argument is that uh, freedom is the absence of coercion. And so one needs to uh, appreciate the criterion by which one defines coercion or non-coercion. And so the criterion is what you call values, and those values then have to be assessed. And from an Islamic perspective, we are free when we abide by the Sharia. And so we abide by Islam and we abide by the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that truly liberates us. So even liberals would argue that uh, freedom is not absolute, uh, but um, uh, as long as those uh, means of coercion uh, do not go against their value system, then uh, they are they are free. Uh, now, if that is the case, then are you basically arguing? Well, what are you arguing? Are you saying we are free, or are you saying we are not free as Muslims? And this is why we need to be a little bit brave intellectually as a Muslim community. And when we discuss these ideas, we can't just say, oh, no, I don't believe in freedom. Because think about this, bro, yeah? You, we live in a society and there's so much emotional connotation to this word. The minute you say, no, I don't believe in freedom, you've cut the conversation. Like, you, they won't even give you the emotional intellectual space for you to continue. Because they'll be like, it's like for them such a self-evident truth. It's like saying, you know... Uh, it's like saying the world is flat, right? And we just have to be sensitive to the kind of social uh, environment that we live in. So we have to be sensitive to that. Obviously, the first part of the answer was for Muslims and non-Muslims to understand what, you know, we don't agree to the kind of uh, popular notion of doing what you want. But the idea of freedom itself, that we need to unpack it. And we need to say to people, look, we don't necessarily disagree with the idea of liberation or, or, or freedom. In terms of that, you know, we have rights because Muslims, you know, in the Islamic tradition, it's, it's full of rights. We have a massive ethical tradition about the rights of individuals, the rights of society, the rights of Allah, the rights of others, the rights of animals, right? And we need to make them understand that freedom really is all about if your rights have been violated. So once we talk about this and we show that freedom is the absence of coercion and the absence of coercion is when rights are not violated then freedom is when rights are, not, rights are not violated. So the question here is, whose rights? What conception of rights? So this gives us an amazing chance to do really good da'wah, convey the truth of the Islamic worldview, and to say to them, the Islamic conception of rights are the true rights, right? The Islamic conception of the rights are the rights to follow. Why? Because we could show that Allah exists, we could show that he's worthy of worship, and we could show that the Quran is true. And at the same time, we can show that Allah is all-wise, all-knowing, and the source of all goodness. And, you know, when Allah says this is the rights of the human being, when Allah says that he has honored the children of Adam, when Allah says he has given us certain rights, 
then these rights are true because whatever comes from truth is truth. We could show God exists, Quran is true, the Prophet is the final Prophet, and they've given us these rights, then these are the rights to follow. So from this perspective, you know, it's very important to have that type of discussion and dialogue because what that would make people realize is that when they follow Islam and they adopt the rights that Islam has given them and they follow that, and they don't violate that, then by definition, they are truly liberated, right? Um, and that's why, you know, if you want to unpack the verse that we spoke about earlier, chapter 39, verse 29, you know, if you don't worship Allah, it's like you're worshipping everybody else. You're truly enslaved. I, I want to understand your, your point further. I mean, maybe, maybe if I give you two practical um, uh, Hukam Shari examples. For example, a, a Muslim has to pray five times a day. Or a Muslim uh, woman has to wear the hijab when she goes out in the public, right? Would you say, from from uh, just from a, a very basic understanding of the term freedom, how Westerners view freedom, are these people free when they wear the hijab or they are bound by five daily prayers? Okay, so if you understand the term freedom from a liberal perspective, then no, they're not free. Uh, these these people obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We totally reject that understanding of freedom anyway. Um, and these people, these Muslims, they they worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They, they are obligated to to follow the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, so from the perspective of a liberal notion of freedom, um, which they have a particular conception of rights, um, liberal rights, they would say, no, this, this is a violation because you have a choice not to follow the commands of Allah. But this is the whole issue here. Um, because they have a particular conception of rights, that would make them understand freedom in their context. Because remember, freedom is the absence of coercion, and the absence of coercion really is the the non-violation of rights. It's not just always being coerced, because you could be coerced to do something, and it won't violate your rights, um, just like the example I gave earlier. Uh, so really, it's about the violation of rights. So the discussion shouldn't really even be about the word freedom. It's like, do you have a right to disobey Allah? Of course not, right? But they believe you have a right to disobey Allah. But that question has nothing really to do with the philosophical idea of freedom in that situation. It's about whose conception of rights are true, right? So, but you're right, from a practical, popular point of view, no, we're not free from that perspective. We don't have a right to disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right. Um, so this is something very important for a Muslim to understand. But obviously, I usually attack this from a philosophical angle in order for people to really understand what they mean by freedom. You know, um, and once you do that, then you don't have to start, you know, feeling some kind of complex and thinking, oh, my God, we're not free. How can we say this to others? No, all you need to articulate is, well, what you really mean here is. What is your conception of rights? And if your rights are violated, then that means you're not free. So we could turn it around to the liberal and say, well, actually, you're the one that, that's not free. is because you're, you, you are, your rights have been violated. They'll be like, well, how's that the case? Because the Islamic conception of rights are the true conception of rights. And you're not following them or they've been violated in some case. Therefore, you're not free. So the discussion now is rests upon our understanding of the basic reference points that we have for our worldview, rather than talking past each other and saying, I'm free, you're not free, I'm, I'm this, I'm not this. So from a kind of 
popular discourse point of view, it's really important uh, to understand, you know, our communication, because sometimes when you say to a liberal, I oh, know I'm not free, I'm obligated to do this, I'm enslaved to Allah, that's very good. Uh, from an Islamic point of view, we understand what that means. But remember, language is a vehicle to meaning. Words are vehicles to meaning. They're going to understand what we've just said in a totally different way. They're going to understand it from a liberal paradigm. And it's going to maybe uh, just close, close the door uh, for any positive uh, appreciation of Islam. Now, what I think what we should do, yeah, we should say, yes, we're not free in a liberal sense. But what do you really mean by freedom? And if you get people to realize that it's really about the, 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 the non-violation or the violation of rights, then the question is raised, well, whose conception of rights is actually true? Once you're a Muslim, you're liberated. As Iqbal said, the famous poet of the East, he said, this one sajda, this one prostration that you find so difficult frees you from a thousand prostrations. Allahu Akbar. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, famous statements from uh, the pious predecessors on like, you know, calling people to, to, the, to, to, to liberation. And true liberation is really enslaving yourself to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Jazakallah, that's a very insightful answer. I suppose what I'm trying to get at is, you know, uh, Bro Hamza's, you know, more than I do, that uh, since uh, 9-11, there's been a barrage of... Uh, of negative uh, propaganda, really, against uh, Muslims and Islam, and and one of the arguments raised by, yeah, you know, people who you uh, who you uh, debate and and uh, and try to dissect on on a very regular basis. One of the arguments proposed by you know the Hitchens of this world and and and, and others is that uh, Islam represents a new form of totalitarianism. And so in the sense that uh, Western society uh, bases its fundamental premise upon or one of its fundamental premises is, is that of freedom. Muslims uh, pay disregard to freedom. And so like the Soviet Union before, uh, Muslim society would descend into a, a very uh, coercive society where a person loses, a person within that society just loses all autonomy and an ability to uh, to think for themselves because the state or the society thinks on their behalf is that because of course you said quite rightly if we if we were to say uh, a muslim is not free that is certainly what a westerner would conjure in their mind uh, the type of society a muslim would like to create i mean what's your thoughts on that yeah i mean look we we Firstly, we have to understand that the Islamic intellectual and spiritual tradition has an amazing history for people engaging in intellectual ideas. In actual fact, you know, one would argue that it was because of Islamic societies that you had the birth of like the scientific revolution or, or, or the Renaissance. You know, Professor Thomas Arnold in his book, The Preaching of Islam, he even talks about Muslim Spain and that basically was a milestone for you know the intellectual liberation of Europe itself here. Yeah? So it's a bit of a self-defeating exercise for them to point the finger at the Islamic uh, model or the Islamic framework, because with all due respect, if they study the history, uh, they'll be able to understand that even the use of a computer and the use of an iPhone that requires an algorithm actually was the product of a, an, the Islamic society, uh, because the Islamic society facilitated different people, you know, Jews, Christians and Muslims to work together to look into the interconnecting principles of nature. So 
to say that Islam is totalitarian from the point of view that restricts progress, intellectual progress and thinking, this is bizarre. This is antithetical to history. Uh, and this is basically, with all due respect, just ideological, um, you know, I- ideological uh, uh, faux attacks. It's a fake attack because anything that is against one's worldview, you know, one usually likes to gun it down and, and to make it look dark and make it look um, medieval and make it look uh, inhuman. But, you know, that's actually not the case at all. And unfortunately, we do have some societies that many Muslims live in. One would call them Muslim countries. Uh, doesn't mean they're Islamic countries, of course. Yeah, and they will say, look, look at look these guys, you know, you have despots and totalitarian rulers but with all due respect <laughs> they, they, they're they not following the Islamic uh, framework or the Islamic ethic they're actually they actually a lot of them were I think communists and a lot of them were were, were supported by you know many of these uh, liberal ideologues anyway in the first place but notwithstanding it's important to to make people realize our history and to also you know get people to stand in the possibility that there, there is another kind of theo-philosophical framework, a philosophical framework that doesn't, doesn't adopt your premise, but it can facilitate something very positive for humanity. People need to stand in that, in that possibility. And once they do so, then you can articulate a strong case for, you know, Islamic uh, philosophy, the Islamic worldview, Islamic ethics. They would see something that's quite amazing. I mean, we, history is actually, um, a, you know, a really strong evidence if you like or looking into history give give us an idea uh, about what i'm saying here because when you do look into history i mean especially with the medieval period you know look where look where europe was right look where the the muslim the muslims were especially when you look at the convivencia the coexistence you know in islamic spain um when you had muslims jews and christians working together to 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 produce this kind of intellectual content which was so necessary for 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 the enlightenment of europe really if you think about it yeah i think there were two chaps called adelard of bath and daniel of morley they somehow were connected to islamic spain and uh, i think one of them even traveled there and they they took the the stuff back the intellectual content back and they create an institution which is now known as Oxford University, or at least the, the precursor to that. Now, I just want to take a step back a little bit. We said earlier on that uh, liberals don't ascribe to a, a an absolute form of freedom. But of course, um, we do also hear that in the United States at the moment, there are these freedom warriors. We see that here in the UK, and uh, they seem to uh, seem to argue that any form of imposition by the state, whether that's to wear a face mask or whether that's to uh, to, to, to socially distance or to stay within a, a quarantine area, is, is, a, is too much of an imposition. And uh, their response is that uh, freedom would be jeopardised if we have uh, these forms of restrictions. I mean, commonly today we call them the libertarians. Can you please explain who they are and um, how they have come to this view that any form of restriction uh, is a is is an unduly an unlawful imposition uh, on their lives. Yeah, I mean, let's maybe this would be better articulated if we put it in the context of freedom of speech, yeah, because that's that's the kind of main kind of context that we're talking about um, from a kind of you know COVID uh, Trump being banned and all that stuff. So, okay, 
So when they talk about freedom of speech, right, there are there are no absolutists, right, or they're very rare and they're, they're philosophically incoherent anyway. Yeah. So basically, what 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 do the absolutists say? They basically say that you should have all forms of freedom of speech and freedom of expression without any restrictions, any restrictions at all, even if it leads to like hatred and violence and and what happened on the on, on in the capital right in america and so on and so forth now and the reason they argue this is because look if you do this if you do have any restrictions any at all uh, it it would basically provide a slippery slope to to um censorship and tyranny yeah now Interestingly, there is an academic who writes about freedom of speech, and his name is David Van Mill, and he highlights this very interesting point. Um, and you can find this in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And he says those who support the slippery slope argument tend to make the claim that the inevitable consequence of limiting speech is a slide into censorship and tyranny. But then he just reverses the argument. He says, well, it is worth noting, however, that the slippery slope argument can be used to make the opposite point. One could argue that we should not allow any removal of government interventions on speech or any other type of freedom, because once we do so, we're on the slippery slope to anarchy. So the absolutists would say, no, don't make any restrictions because it's it's a slide into censorship and tyranny. But you could just, you know, make them understand the door swings both ways. If we don't have some restrictions, then that's a slippery slope to anarchy. But the other point, which is very important, especially in the context of freedom of speech, there is no society on Earth, right? And I would even argue if there were societies on Mars, it would be the same situation, yeah? There is no society on Earth that has absolute freedom of speech, yeah? And this is well known. And, and, this, and, and really, and the reason this is the case is because freedom of speech does not exist in a social political vacuum. It exists within society, which therefore exists within a context of competing values. Again, David Van Mill, he mentions this. He says, the first thing to know in any sensible discussion of freedom of speech is that it would have to be limited. Every society places limits on the exercise of speech because it takes place within the context of competing values. So, for example, if a particular value in society is to is to have a cohesive society or if a particular value in society is to dignify minorities and, and human beings, or if a value that you have includes, for example, ensuring people are not physically harmed, then by virtue of that, you have to make some restrictions on speech because it's well known that some speech leads to physical harm. Uh, we even know this when we look at the uh, studies in dehumanization and, and othering. We know that dehumanization and othering actually leads to physical violence in in case in, in, in massively unfortunate cases, uh, g- genocide. We know this with with the with the with, it what happened in Bosnia in the 90s. We know this what happened in Rwanda. You know there are lots of studies on dehumanization and othering, and this type of language can facilitate kind of you know evil collective conscious that would facilitate that would actually manifest itself in some physical harm so the point here is the question now is not about oh you know you restrict freedom of speech you are you are you know tyrannical or you are backward and you are you know whatever fundamentalists or you are you know dictators but rather the question is well what 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 are your values (laughs) it's as simple as that 
So, it, it, you know, if we could all appreciate there's no such thing as freedom of speech in an absolute way. And the reason there is no absolute freedom of speech because freedom of speech is in the context of other values, then let's discuss what values we should follow. This, this, this has shown the contradiction of, you know, secularism, or the contradiction of, of liberal values, because, it, you know, take France as an example, right? I think it's Article 43351 of the French Criminal Code. It punishes grave insult, outrage of the national anthem of the tricolor flag. I mean, la hawla wa la illa billah, with all due respect. Um, are you saying that the dignity of minorities is much less than, than your, your national anthem? La hawla wa la illa billah, man, what's going on? So what about, for example, the political cartoonist Maurice Sine, right? He worked for the French satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo for about 20 years and he was fired in 2009. Why? Because he, was, he did cartoons mocking the relationship of the former French president Sarkozy's son with a wealthy Jewish woman. Forget that. You may think that's like, you know, a, a social thing. What about law? Well, a French court, for example... Um, it had an injunction banned a Jesus-based clothing advert mimicking Da Vinci's last summer. And what did the judge say? He said, uh, he ruled it was a gratuitous and aggressive act of intrusion of people's innermost beliefs. So, you know, for one uh, group of people, there's one law or or, or their their value. They seem to be dignified. But for another group, i.e. the Muslims, they're not dignified. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, we see these contradictions all the time. And the reason being is because you know, their values are misaligned or their values are incoherent or they don't, they don't have the right values in order to create that kind of cohesion and facilitate the objectives of freedom of speech. Can you explain that, please? What do you mean by the objectives of freedom of speech? We need to think about this. You either believe freedom of speech has intrinsic value or it's instrumental, right? Instrumental means it has some kind of utility, meaning freedom of expression is a means to truth, accountability, and progress, right? This is even something that even John Stuart Mill, you know, the kind of founder of the kind of quasi-modern version of freedom of speech, if you like, you know, he would say it's, 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 it's based on, you know, essentially truth. Now, in order to facilitate truth. Now, but if you have the other view that, no, it's intrinsically valuable, right? It's like an inherent right. It's, it's, it's an objective value that you could... That, that, that you can just express yourself irrespective of any utility, then from a kind of secular perspective, they can't justify that. And this is something that even David uh, Van Mill argues, like, well, how can you have values under a secular paradigm? Because under secularism, if you believe that this whole universe, there is no divine, there is no supernatural, everything can be explained by physical processes, which are really fundamentally blind, there is no you know, in, in, in intention directing these physical processes and they're cold, meaning they're not aware of themselves or aware of something outside of themselves, then how can that be a basis for any value? Because value only a value in an objective sense only makes sense under kind of religious paradigm that you have, you know, a, a deity external to the universe that can give that type of value that's it's not subject to blind, cold physical processes. And that's why, you know, the argument that they say is an inherent, absolute, objective right is absolute nonsense. They don't even have the philosophical uh, coherence or the philosophical perspective or the grounding uh, to even justify that position that, yes, this is an ultimate, it's an ultimate value. Freedom of expression is an ultimate value. 
And I think many philosophers don't argue that anyway. You may have the ideologues that do, but they're just ideologues and they're incoherent usually. Um, because, you know, according to a secular paradigm, and to be a bit more technical, according to a philosophical naturalistic paradigm, you can't justify ultimate value because you're reducing everything to physical processes which are blind. There's no intention direct them, directing them anywhere. And they're cold or non-conscious, meaning they're not aware of themselves or aware of anything outside of themselves. So fundamentally, you know, your idea of value is just an idea that's in the brain that's basically a product of electrons whizzing around in in a way that is non-conscious, cold and blind. How can that be a justification for ultimate value of anything? It's not. It's a subject to these non-valuable electrons whizzing around. So the point here is you have they have to adopt a position that's instrumental. So if freedom of speech is instrumental, therefore it has utility. Therefore, it's not it's not something to be valued in of itself. It's valued because of what it can give you. So freedom of speech can give you, or the ability to express yourself can give you truth, accountability, and justice. And that was the kind of raison d'etre, the reason for existence of the freedom of speech discussions. So you can have the ability to account people, account the powerful, take, take them to account. You, you, know, you, you, you facilitate justice and you have truth. Now, the irony is these, these, these liberal extremists, secular extremists, right? And they are extremists. When they say freedom of speech is necessary for the freedom of insult is necessary for freedom of speech, they're very incoherent because there are so many situations where freedom to insult goes against the very objectives of freedom of speech, like truth, accountability, and progress. Take, for example, I don't know. Uh, a famous scientist say he wants to talk about the truth of his new theory and he starts his presentation by insulting the mothers of everyone in the room. I mean, is that going to facilitate the objectives of freedom of speech in this context, which is to articulate the truth about his theory? Of course not. Take, for example, you know, Muslim activists, they want to take the oppressive Chinese regime to account for oppressing uh, Muslim, the Muslims in Northwestern China, uh, the, the Uyghurs. Now, if they started off by insulting Chinese religion and Chinese cultural practices, that's not going to facilitate good accountability, right? So your freedom to insult actually is going against the very objectives of freedom of speech. And there are so many other thought experiments that you could talk about in this context, right? Uh, it, there's one thing saying that freedom of speech has a, an instrumental end. It's there to, it's a function of something. It's there to, uh, to protect and to advance values in society. But there's another thing saying uh, another, uh, if you were to apply legal restrictions to that speech, so I'll give you the, the example you made of uh, the Uyghurs, right? You know, someone gives a speech and someone first uh, uh, ridicules uh, China and the Chinese system and the Chinese people and then talks about human rights or, or rights of, of Muslims in China. That goes against the intention of that speech, right? Uh, but it's not illegal, and the law does not uh, step in and say that's illegal. That's just a case of uh, a person self-censoring for a political end. I suppose the, the, the proponents of freedom of speech would, would argue that uh, we should never make speech illegal unless it creates a real harm that, can, that, that one can measure. If it doesn't create that real harm, yes, it may be morally repugnant and it may be unacceptable and it, it may be, you know, uh, it may uh, be uh, against the sensitivities of a particular group, minority or majority. But uh, one shouldn't uh, use the law 
to to restrict that uh, the ability to to speak your mind. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I do see that point. So, but we weren't really talking about this of legal restrictions per se. We're talking about the concept of restrictions. But if we want to go down the legal restrictions route, okay, let's take that point into 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 consideration. John Stuart Mill talked about the harm principle, and obviously the harm principle needs to be unpacked. And there's lots to say about this. And they say, okay, you can only have legal restrictions to speech as long as you can show some kind of um, uh, harm that has been inflicted or potential harm. Like, for example, from what I remember, John Stuart Mill said that, you know, you should not allow, you know, um, a, a, a mob uh, protesting, um, a, a, you know, if they're going to basically say that corn dealers are, are starvers of the poor. You know, that's going to create a riot. You're not going to allow them to do that outside the corn dealer's house, for God's sake, because that could end up killing the corn dealers, or at least they're going to get, you know, uh, physically violated in some way. So that was his example. But obviously, more needs to be discussed on this. But then I would just raise the question, well, how do you define harm? Because they're going to define harm from a liberal perspective with their own values, with their own uh, perspectives and premises. And we're going to define harm and benefit According, according to our own perspective. And we would say following the commands of Allah is the best thing for you. And not following them is the greatest harm. So again, these things go back to your worldview. They go back to your philosophical worldview. And, and, and the reason that a lot of liberals don't like discussing this because they don't have a coherent worldview. Their ontology is, is, is incoherent and it's false in my view, which we can unpack maybe another day. But the point here is, they don't like those discussions because they want you to assume their paradigm. No, why do we have to step into your paradigm with all due respect? We have our own paradigm. So yes, I agree with you, mate. Let's take this into consideration. Yes, let's have no restrictions unless it leads to harm. Yeah, but here you go. Answer this question. What is harm? How do you define harm? Who defines it? Who draws the line and where? Are you willing to have that discussion? In many cases, people are not willing to have that discussion. You know why? Because they haven't thought about these things. But alhamdulillah for the Muslim, they, should, they do and they should, the Muslims should start to articulate this perspective and they should start, start saying, yes, well, if you don't follow the commands of Allah, that is intrinsically harmful, harmful for you. And if you follow them, that's actually really good for you, not only you, you as an individual, but society as a whole. So if I've understood your your point so far, and I think it's a really, I've never thought about the subject like this. So Jazakallah, it's a really good, interesting idea. So your point is, look, we've got liberalism, we've got Western society, liberal society, and we've got Islam and, and Muslims, right? And, and uh, both uh, societies uh, uh, restrict speech in one shape or form because both societies see speech as a, an instrument to uh to achieve something in society right it's a way to facilitate uh the values of society and so liberal society uh curtail speech it may draw the red line the line here and muslim societies curtail speech because it but it draws the line somewhere else uh but nevertheless um uh, uh what we have to debate what we have to argue is the line other and the values that precede that line what what were the values that allowed one to draw the line here uh, as opposed to draw the line at a at another juncture? And that's effectively what you're asking. But then th- if that is the case, um, why is it that we see that the line is drawn? You, you mentioned in France, you know, the, the, the sort of two-faced hypocrisy of where the line is drawn in relation to the Muslim community as opposed to other religious denominations. 
But we also see a, a problem in, in Western society as to what are the limits of, of free speech. If, if anything, for t- today, the, the debates are not raging between you know, Muslims and, and Westerners. It's between Westerners and Westerners. So uh, you know, should Donald Trump be banned from Twitter? Uh, and and is that is that an acceptable uh, uh, regulation of of free speech? Now in America, of course, they've got uh, Second Amendment rights to say effectively what they want. Yet, an American company is, is ready to uh, to ban the president from from Twitter, albeit with a week left in office. Or, for example, you know, in in the UK, uh, there's been a, a heavy discussion about whether the BBC should invite those who don't believe in covid restrictions onto onto the channel why do we see such incoherence in the way in in western societies as to where that line should be drawn yeah well <laughs> that's a very good question um that is a very good question i mean well fundamentally the incoherence is because maybe they've got their values in the twist right um, that's that's the first point. And the other thing is you have to understand that a lot of these people, this is about power, because when it comes to freedom of expression and, 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 and all of these ideas and, and putting restrictions in place, legal restrictions, social restrictions, or whatever the case may be, you know, these would happen because of human agency and, and, and the people who have been given the power to put those restrictions in place. And human beings have their own interests, right? And they want to preserve those interests. I mean, you know, we can't now say that these people who are in charge to put restrictions in place um, and they're in charge to put, you know, create laws in order to basically facilitate freedom of speech or to curtail speech in a way that's in line with other liberal secular values we can't assume that they're just perfect and, you know, they have their own interests too. And that's why you're going to have a lot of uh, contradictions. And that's why you may have a lot of um, misapplication. Like, you know, we saw this, uh, especially in France, you know, with the French, you know, the laïcité extremists, they like to dignify the Jewish minority. And I don't, I'm not against that. We should dignify all minorities, but you know, they want to dignify a particular minority, but when it comes to the Muslims, they throw the freedom of insult is necessary for freedom of speech card. I mean, this is a huge contradiction because maybe, and let's be very honest, they just don't like Islam and they don't like Muslims, right? And and that's why, you know, the human agent, the human agency, we're, not, we're, we're weak, we're not just, many of us are not very just and you know, and, and that's what happens. We have to see it from a human perspective as well. It's not only necessarily the values, but it's the people who are actually in place to 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 apply these restrictions and these laws in the first place. But um, I think this raises um, a, a, another question of of well, it doesn't raise the question; just re- reiterates the same point, which is well that their reference point for their values and the reference point for that line that you're talking about, even under a secular liberal paradigm, they, they don't have an agreement. They don't have, for example, something like what we have as Muslims. We have an ethical tradition. We have the Quran and the Sunnah. Yes, within that, there is valid differences of opinion. There's a scope of valid interpretation for sure. But generally speaking, we have a solid, profound 
a reference point that is full of goodness and wisdom because it's come from Al-Bar, the source of all goodness, and it's come from Al-Hakim, the one who is the wise. He has the totality of knowledge and wisdom. He has the picture. We just have a pixel. They don't have that, and that's why they're in a mess. And, that, and that's my main point, you know. And this is why sometimes, I know this is off, 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 off topic slightly, but once I was asked in a, in a, in a, a university, you know, should Islam be reformed? And I was like, reformed to what? <laughs> tell, tell me what you want. Okay, I said, let's stand in the possibility it needs reform. Okay, let's just stand in that possibility. What do you mean to reform? What do you want Islam to reform to? What, what reference point do you have? So, you know, under secular, liberal, normative ethics, what, what ethical tradition do you want us to follow? Which one that you guys disagree about all the time? Yeah? Tell me, which form of liberalism do you want us to, to, reform, to reform to? Let us know. Because once you sort out your house, then maybe you could start, start raising this question. You know, you raise this question as if you have this kind of like gold standard. Everything is fine from an ethical and ideological perspective. It's not. It's a complete mess. So <laughs> I said to them, what do you want Islam to reform to? Let me know. Once you saw that out, then we could have the discussion. But I suppose that there are divisions and splits and, and uh, difference of viewpoints within Muslims. And Muslims also misapply the rules of Islam. I mean, how would you, how would you manage that discussion? Yeah, I mean, and that's why the whole concept of taqwa, God consciousness, is very important in the Islamic tradition. Because in any legal system, whether it's Islam, whether it's a true one or a false one, you know, it's, it's human agency that's very important as well. And that is, and, and the agent, the human, is, is, is really his actions or her actions are a manifestation of their state of being, how they relate to themselves, how they relate to others, which is really what's going on in their heart, in their spiritual heart. And this is why Islam is very unique, because it tries to inculcate that sense of taqwa, that sense of God consciousness, that you need to stick to the law and the spirit of the law as much as possible because there is that your creator is watching and you and you know that your whole purpose of life life is to worship him is to love him to know him to obey him and to direct all acts of worship to him alone and that kind of consciousness you know you know it it should be like your physical and your spiritual uh, it should be part of your physical and spiritual fabric yeah you, and, and, and that should always keep you in check. And that's what taqwa is about, isn't it? It's like walking between a path between two thorny bushes and making sure you don't get, you know, you, you don't get hurt. You know, you, you're, you're, you're conscious of, of your creator. And that's why this is very, very important um, in any uh, civilization. And unfortunately, when it comes to the liberal paradigm, if you're going to have the premise of individualism or the premise of abstract individualism or the premise of that the, the primacy is on the individual you know you give the individual primacy uh, it's going to manifest itself in a way that it's going to facilitate that their whole life is going to be centered around their own interests uh, and that unfortunately means really being enslaved to the hawa a slave to their own desires shahawais the blameworthy desires and allah makes this clear in the quran he says have you not seen the one who takes his own desire as his lord so in that context when you don't have this kind of spiritual psychological grounding in the way that islam gives you then you're going to use and abuse your own values and principles in order to facilitate your own interests and we've seen this politically and socially in 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 the secular liberal countries that we live in and we've seen this we've seen this in muslim countries too when when when, when there isn't a kind of collective conscious of people taking seriously the idea of 
pleasing Allah, then you know you could mis you could misuse Islamic law as well. But that's why holistic Islam is very important because it considers these things very very seriously. But one final point on the liberalism issue. Really, liberalism, you know, the government has to take a principled distance from what I mean by that is, I mean, technically speaking, obviously, it's not uh, implemented in its totality in this way. But technically speaking, you know, liberalism does shouldn't they, they don't give you a conception of the good life. The government should not give you a conception of the good life. I think this is articulated by Will Kimlicker. He says you, it doesn't give you the conception of the good life. And when the reason being because liberalism focuses on the individual and assume that the individual is rational and that can make his own mind about things so what that happens is there is a vacuum of values right and what they say is in this context liberalism facilitates what you call a, a, a competing marketplace of values where rational individuals can debate it out for themselves yeah in that vacuum there is a massive problem because if you if you individualize all of these people and you don't see that there is there are other influential aspects happening in society then you you, you miss the, the the big picture what's the big picture that there are influential structures in society that can shape individuals so what happens in that kind of liberal marketplace of values you know the uh, where there's a competition and the government creates that vacuum in order for that competition comp that values of that com competitive the competition of values to happen there's going to be people who are more powerful than others. There's going to be people who have more influence than others. There's going to be influential structures in society that are far more influential and coercive in some way. And they're going to try and dictate society to go, to go along a certain position. So if you add the capitalist rhetoric in there and the capitalist kind of um, uh, influential structures in a liberal society, then they're going to push them towards this aspect of maybe excessive greed or whatever the case may be. And, 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 and therefore, um, it, in a liberal society, you can create a, a, a group of, a, a bunch of individuals, a collective that ends up being unethical. Uh, we're living in a world of now post-truth nihilism, right? From that perspective, truth doesn't really matter anymore. It's about, you know, it's like, it's like now there's, especially amongst our youth, there's this like collective trend of truth doesn't matter. And there's a collective trend of meaninglessness and a collective trend of that morals don't even matter anymore, which is very dangerous. And I would even argue this kind of post-truth culture is because of an abuse of freedom of speech. Because when you always allow people under the guise of freedom of speech to insult uh, in that way and to gratuitously insult, what, what, what happens? And, and therefore, including in that is to lie about other people. Then what do you create? You create massive mistrust in society. And when you create massive mistrust in society, people won't care about truth anymore because they're like, well, you know, who do I trust? I can't trust anyone anymore because he, you know, he says that is fake news and the fake news say that is true news. Then who's right and who's wrong, right? And people don't have time anymore to do their own specific research or there's so much information out there. They're paralyzed by the amount of information. So generally speaking, you have this kind of post-truth culture and, not, and truth doesn't matter anymore. What that has created is a massive mistrust in society. And now it's created uh, the people that you're supposed to be governing to actually mistrust you and mistrust scientific authority. So reap what you saw. <laughs> Earlier on, you mentioned that uh, in Islam, we don't view freedom as a foundational idea, freedom of speech as a foundational idea. But at the same time, you mentioned that... Um, uh, we we do accept uh, that people have uh, 
have uh, elements of uh, people are able to speak their mind on on an, on a number of issues, and the thing that draws the line, the thing that that uh, limits speech, are the values that Islam expresses. So I want to I want you to clarify what these values are. What what are the values of Islam uh, uh, that allows an Islamic society to, to set the line to a different standard to say a liberal society? Yeah, so, I mean, we could summarize this in a logical form, right? So, number one, to convince someone of the truth, which is like the kind of um, objective of freedom of speech. So, to to convince someone of the truth and to promote the truth in many circumstances requires good argumentation, persuasion, and civility. Number two, insults in many contexts are a barrier to good argumentation, persuasion, and civility. Therefore, insults in many cases prevent truth. Therefore, the objective of freedom of speech is undermined. Now, when you're saying that, so this, this gives you a kind of, uh, kind of logical context of why we need um, to have values, because it's not just about, you know, freedom and, and absolute freedom and freedom to insult, because it goes against the very objectives of freedom of speech or speech or expressing yourself. Now, when you mention that we don't believe freedom of speech is intrinsically valuable, well, it's not only Muslims. Philosophers know that freedom of speech is not intrinsically valuable. Secular liberal philosophers. Forget the ideologue politicians. Because they know this. Look, we, under a kind of philosophical naturalistic lens, we cannot ground this idea that freedom of speech has an objective value. It's, it's mind independent. In this naturalistic world order, for example, this worldview, how can we justify ultimate objective value concerning freedom of speech when... All we can ground the idea is in, in, is in physical processes which are further reduced to electrons whizzing around and they're blind and non-conscious, like I mentioned earlier. So how can you give it, how can you ground the idea of value? So they know it's instrumental. So uh, that needs to be understood by, by, by the listeners as well. So what are the Islamic values? So generally speaking, intellectual discussion with an intellectual tone is all game in the Islamic tradition, right? This is why we had things like the algorithm, we had things like philosophy and astronomy and so on and so forth that, you know, as I said earlier, Thomas Arnold argues it was a kind of, you know, milestone, milestone to to uh, to, to to the kind of uh, European progress. And, you know, I think also the famous historian Robert Brufol, he also mentioned something very similar concerning this, yeah? He talks about that, you know, the kind of Islamic worldview, the Islamic civilization, you know, facilitated um, uh, European progress. You know, his book was called The Making of Humanity. And he says, uh, for although there is not a single aspect of European growth in which the decisive influence of Islamic culture is not traceable, Nowhere is it so clear and momentous as in the genesis of that power which constitutes the permanent distinctive force of the modern world and the supreme source of its victory, natural science and the scientific spirit. So um, if there is an intellectual tone, it's, it's all game. And you know, it's very interesting. The Islamic intellectual tradition is, and Muslims need to hear this to be inspired. It is so rich that many of the attacks that you find today in today's literature, even in Orientalist literature, the Muslims were the ones who usually came with those attacks in the first place, not to attack themselves, but we had such a rich, intellectually robust tradition. Those questions were already asked. 
and answered in our, in, in our tradition. That's how powerful it is, right? And obviously it was done with an intellectual tone, with an ethical tone, because the main objective of the Islamic scholars was truth, right? Truth is, you know, a value in the Islamic tradition. You know, Allah's name is Al-Haq. He is the truth. Um, and truth is extremely, extremely high value in the Islamic tradition. So if you want to acquire truth, one knows that you can't just say whatever you want because it becomes a barrier to truth, right? Um, now, we also have to appreciate that there are gray areas, right? Let's, let's just be honest here. In some things, there are gray areas. But it's all about adopting a value framework. And once you adopt the correct value framework, then those gray areas become less gray. But anyway, the point here is what are our values? So yes, we, we, we believe in um, accounting unjust rulers and preventing evil. The Prophet said the, the best of all struggles is a word of truth to a tyrant ruler. Allah says in the Quran in chapter 3 verse 104, let there rise amongst you people that command the good and join what is right and forbid what is wrong. They are indeed the successful. Um, and so on and so forth. You know, Allah says in the Quran, chapter 103, and enjoin on each other truth. Allah says in Surah Al-Baqarah, second chapter, verse 42, and mix not truth with falsehood, nor conceal the truth while you know it. Um, we also have a kind of ethical kind of discussion when you want to intellectually discuss with other people. Allah says in chapter 16, verse 125, invite to the way of your Lord with wisdom and good instruction. And argue or debate with them in a way that is best. As Jamakhshari, the grammarian, he said, this is, you know, the best way to argue with them is without any gruffness or harshness, for example. Yeah. Um, very famous uh, verse in the Quran in chapter 20, verse 44, when Allah says to Musa, Moses, alayhi salam, and speak to Pharaoh mildly, layyinan, perhaps that may, he may accept admonition, right? Um, and this is a very unjust ruler, right? Allah didn't say to him, you know, start cussing his character and start cussing his family. No, Allah says, speak to him layin and mildly that, that he may accept admonition. So the default position is to speak with a certain, you know, uh, in, in an ethical way. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. There, there, are, there, are, there are other contexts where you have to be assertive for sure, but that requires um, a, a virtue ethical perspective and understanding, which is you have to understand the moral variables when you should do that and when you should not. Um, but the point here is, uh, the general principle is that you should always start with softness and mercy. Um, also, uh, the, the Quran forbids gratuitous insults, right? Gratuitous insults of other traditions, you know? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes that very clear. When Allah says in the Quran that we basically should not, do not insult, this is basically in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 108. Oh, believers, do not insult what they invoke besides Allah, or they will insult God spitefully out of ignorance. Um, you know, various hadith, various traditions of the Prophet wasallam that talk about, you know, manners and akhlaq and good ethics and good speech and not, and, 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 and the, 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 the command not to use insults and swearing and so on and so forth the point here is there's so much in the tradition that we can unpack but as you can see there is a very positive framework of valuing truth valuing justice and valuing accountability and the islamic tradition facilitates that with regards to its values so it has an appreciation that if you just say whatever you want in the most insulting way 
it's actually not going to facilitate truth. It's not going to facilitate facilitate accountability, and it's not going to facilitate justice, which are the kind of objectives of of of, of speech in the first place. So as you can see, Islam provides a kind of value framework in order to facilitate truth, accountability, and progress. Now, people think, oh, Islam share scared of intellectual debate and dialogue. That's not true at all. You're forgetting it's in medieval Baghdad that you had Muslims, Jews, Christians, I believe, and also atheists, right, that were debating these issues. So we had the 8th century Dahris, the Dahriya, who were like the modern-day philosophical naturalists, the modern-day uh, atheists, you know, you know, there was intellectual debate and dialogue. Al-Ghazali talks about them in his Alchemy of Happiness, right? You know, he, I think he compares them to an ant uh, walking uh, on, a, on, on a book or someone writing ink and the ant just sees blobs of ink, but they don't have a holistic picture because when you look, you see that it's meaningful words, right? So he called them like reductionists from that point of view. You had Abu Hanifa, one of the famous scholars of the Islamic tradition, the most you know noble and noteworthy scholars of Islamic tradition, may Allah have mercy on him. He basically um, uh, had a debate. Apparently, one of the Dahris, one of the philosophical naturalists or atheists of the time, yeah, and he embarrassed him thoroughly. But he embarrassed him with akhlaq, adab, and good intellectual discussion with an intellectual tone, right? And that facilitated truth, you know. So we have a very rich history. I mean. You know, I'm not an Islamic ethicist in any shape or form, but when people explore the Islamic tradition and they see all the evidences together and they see them from the perspective of seeing them holistically, you will see this is the, the, the perfect framework uh, in order for us to adopt, in order for us to achieve truth, accountability and progress. And history is, 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 gives, us, gives us that answer. When you look at Islamic history, there was truth, accountability and progress. Obviously, look, I'm not the kind of person that, you know, over-glorifies Islamic history. I mean, I think that is a sign of a defeated mind, to be honest, when you over-glorify one's history. Yes, there were human beings, there was lots of errors, but at least we can help, we can say with, with, with some degree of truth that any unhealthy aspects of the history was because people didn't adopt the Islamic tradition properly. Um, and, and that's very important. But look, I think what's important to understand that there is a fine line, you know, between like deliberate, and unintended insults yeah that's important to understand as well and we have to realize that one person's insults can be another person's form of dialogue so it's not as simple as saying don't insult or degrade each other right um however what we need to do we need to therefore in that context appreciate that there can be a fine line and to be sensitive to the person that you're communicating to and that's why following the prophetic sunnah is very important because the prophet was a person of Helm of forbearance, who was a person of empathy. So if your objective is to better convince someone and better educate someone and better express yourself, then the onus is on the one who's, who's, who's actually doing the expression, right? And that's why, you, you know, we've heard it before, with great freedom comes great responsibility. So if you, well, we want to truly engage and we want to convey truth or take people to account or we want to establish justice, then the one aiming to do that has to understand that, that fine line sometimes. And they have to basically appreciate what is the best way I can communicate this message to this person. And that's why with a lot of these issues, 
you have to understand that it's like virtue ethics, meaning that there is a context and moral variable behind these things. So it's not like sometimes one way for all. You know, you can, for example, be speaking to a group of people that they may have their own sensitivities. But if I want to express myself to that group of people in a way that is conducive to truth, accountability and justice, then I should do that by being informed about their particular sensitivities. And that will show sincerity to myself, sincerity to them and sincerity to my objectives. Now, but if your objectives is just to be an absolute, you know, nasty person, then obviously you're not going to take that in consideration. You're just going to just like please your own ego and just, you know, ignore people's sensitivities and ignore uh, the context of your speech and your and your articulation in essence what what i mean you're, you're describing for a type of society which is actually very tolerant and very able to to accept difference of opinion and even if that comes from muslims and non-muslims but the red lines are that uh, you know speech shouldn't stray into an area which undermines sort of these general values of truth and and you know of of uh, of creating civil society yeah civility that's the very important word that i haven't used properly yeah absolutely civility because islam is all pro civility and civility means that you basically want to create a cohesive society that you can facilitate these higher objectives of truth accountability and progress uh, and it means that you have to be be a person of of of, of ethics you have to be ethical to especially when you're engaging uh in public discourse absolutely and and that's i mean this strays into the area of um no platforming that we see now in on sort of western university campuses and and sort of notions of of triggering uh, uh you know people and, and minorities and uh and and of course it, there is a there is a an intense debate uh, as to whether uh, it is acceptable to to uh, to curtail speech because it harms people. I suppose from an Islamic perspective, the way you describe it is, you know, we'll be extremely tolerant, but of course uh, we have to be cognizant of the fact that uh, some speech is actually going to harm people, and uh, you know, one needs to uh, one needs to restrain that type of uh, of speech if it if it is going to lead to. Uh, you know the the undermining of of some sort of civility and harmony within a society. Yeah, for sure. That, but 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 then again, it all it all boils down to your philosophical worldview. What is defined as harm, and how do you know it's going to be harmful? And those things um, are are defined by your philosophy and your worldview. And look, the, and this is like the striking contradiction. Like in academia, there is a well-known connection between othering and dehumanization and genocide, for example. But, you know, when it comes to, for example, a lot of politicians or influencers in the West, they've used language that is de dehumanizing and othering of Muslims, right? Um, and no wonder you have this kind of increase of kind of anti-Muslim hatred. Well, reap what you sow, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it. Um, and we've seen this, studies have been done in about Bosnia, about the genocide in Bosnia, in Rwanda, in Nazi Germany. It was this type of language that facilitated this kind of type of discourse. And it was very interesting. The whole Trump thing, they were analyzing his speech and they tried to show that his speech was actually an incitement to violence, right? Um, and it, this is very, very, very interesting because they need to be consistent. Why don't you use the same type of approach when it comes to anti-Muslim bigotry 
or anti-minorities or you know when you talk about other people so on one hand it's all oh, freedom of insult freedom of expression and on the other hand oh he was inciting violence uh, and I think that's because of what actually happened so they're looking at it from a retrospective point of view but it's also politically charged and it's based upon people's political interests and ideologies right as I said before human beings are are human beings um, you know, where is the shouting and screaming about what Modi is doing in India, right? And the dehumanizing and other... Okay, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of Western people who... A lot of, you know, different types of human beings are actually against what Modi is doing. But generally speaking, where is the, where is the collective uproar, you know? Um, you know, Twitter is banning uh, Trump, yeah? Why doesn't Twitter ban, you know, the, the CCP or the Chinese government? Or why doesn't the Twitter ban... Uh, Modi, you know, they've been well known to use even worse type of language, dehumanizing and othering language against Muslims, right? And which has facilitated far more violence with all due respect. There's a massive inconsistency here. You know why? Is because of political interests, right? And if people would, people had that taqwa, as we said earlier, or that God conscious, or, or that, that consistent ethical framework, at least they would be consistent. I mean, don't get me wrong. The the CEO of Twitter did say this this can this this shows and this is an this is this this can be a dangerous president, or in 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 banning uh, Trump, uh, but uh, it's still very inconsistent. He if he applies the philosophy or, or or the logic of why he banned Trump, then a hell of a lot more people should be banned, <laughs> right? Well, let's. I mean, it, it is a crazy world, and and let, and maybe even crazier when we talk about Muslims in the West and how we um, conduct ourselves, but also how we uh, uh, are um, how we sort of interact with these values, such as the freedom of speech. Now, the journalist Mustafa Akil he argues that uh, there is an inherent contradiction, or even a, 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 a hypocrisy, when Muslims call for. Uh, freedom of speech to be uh, enshrined or to be protected when it comes to uh, when it comes to religious symbols uh, and when it comes to uh, the the you know the uh, Islamic duties things like wearing hijab, but when it comes to when when we think about um, uh, the attacks from Charlie Hebdo on on the Prophet Ali Salam and and the various um, the various um, you know very very gratuitous uh, uh, insults against uh, the against Islam and Muslims. We call for the curtailing of freedom of speech, and uh, Akil makes a point that you can't call for freedom of speech on the one hand, and then call for the curtailing of freedom of speech. You have to be consistent. I mean, how do you see this apparent contradiction? Yeah, I mean, I agree with him <laughs> in to a certain degree. So, what I mean by that is the way Muslims articulate themselves on this issue has to drastically change. Because if you adopt freedom of speech from the context of adopting, adopting the liberal conception, as we discussed earlier, then you're going to come out very, very inconsistent. So on one hand, you're enjoying uh, uh, freedom of speech as per the liberal conception. And on the other hand, uh, you also... Um, you know, uh, unhappy when it when it when it when it goes against you. So I do appreciate absolutely what he's saying, and this is the problem of our Muslim leaders and philosophers and thinkers. They haven't thought about this properly, and they did this a lot with human rights. Now, Muslims are not against the kind of abstract idea of human rights. Obviously, we're not. 
But what we want to have a discussion on, what conception of rights are we talking about? Why are you assuming the liberal project on human rights is the kind of absolute, you know, uh, uh, the, the absolute you know, conception, the most accurate and correct conception of, of human rights? Even liberals themselves, like Professor Ron Chavez in his book, I think it's called Human Rights and a Liberal Project, he argues that the UN was designed to push a liberal conception of human rights, which means that it's understood through the premise of liberalism, not through the premise of truth, but through the premise of a particular ideological perspective or a particular political doctrine or political set of ideas. So um, what we need to be careful about as a community is that when we articulate ourselves, that people actually understand where we're coming from. So what I would do in this freedom of speech context is not to call for more freedom of speech or to call for certain restrictions, but to have a discussion of, well, since we know there is no absolute freedom of speech and freedom of speech is curtailed by virtue of other competing values in society, then what we should do as Muslims, we should articulate what values people should follow in the 21st century and in every century, and it should be Islam, the Islamic values, and we should have that philosophical discussion. That would make us far more consistent. And this is why sometimes this kind of political pragmatism, this kind of, um, you know, wanting to have our cake and eat it really is going to backfire. And it will backfire. We've seen this happening in North America. Uh, it's, it's backfiring from the point of view when we have basically somehow aligned ourselves with maybe uh, excessively liberal um, positions on, on certain things. And that has created a narrative for Muslims to either think it's okay for people to insult the Prophet and or it's okay for us to accept certain things that we, by, by, by definition and foundationally, we believe to be antithetical to the Islamic tradition. And, and, and that is happening is because we've, we've misaligned ourselves with some of these, uh, you know, these 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 ideological ideas, these liberal ideological ideas. So it's very important for us to be brave. And we have to also take moral and intellectual leadership, honestly. I don't know why we think now moral and intellectual leadership means that we're going to be brave enough to say that Islam is compatible with liberalism. How is that brave or moral? I mean, with all due respect, that's that's the utterance of someone who's enslaved. Just be honest. There's nothing wrong with disagreeing with other people. And just because you disagree with other people, it doesn't mean you hate them or you want them destroyed. No, Muslims are committed to the well-being of humanity. This is the definition of what it means to be a Muslim. The Prophet ﷺ said in a hadith that is sahih, that is authentic. It was narrated by Bukhari. It's in Tariq al-Kabir. Love for humanity. The word is linnas. Love for the people, what you love for yourself. Even the hadith that talks about Akhihi, your brother, your brother, that also means non-Muslims as well. As Annawi said, the famous classical scholar, he said this means basically wanting good for people and wanting guidance for people. The Maliki scholar, Ibn, Ibn Taqiq al-Eid, he says something very similar. So Muslims must be committed to the well-being of all people, which means you want goodness for them and guidance for them. So just because you disagree with liberals, just because you disagree with, with certain uh, 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 ethical positions from, you know, your liberal friends or, you know, uh, from, 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 from certain, you know, people that you want to align yourself in with for the common good. That doesn't mean you want them destroyed or you hate them. You, we need to be brave enough to make that articulation. Say, look, we're committed to your well-being, but we believe the premise of your philosophy is absolutely false. Even by your own standards, 
let's have a nice tolerant discussion see see, see and, and you could see the truth for yourself and we should basically articulate a positive case for our own world in our own tradition that's extremely powerful and that is extremely um, that basically will facilitate the liberation of people in this life and the akhirah. We need to have that narrative and we, and we should articulate it with rahmah. The Prophet was a rahmah, he was a mercy to all the worlds. We should articulate with hikmah, with wisdom, and with good, with good, uh, with good speech, as Allah says in, in chapter 16 of the Quran. So we need to be brave enough and take that type of intellectual leadership, which we're lacking at the moment. Because what we think now, we think intellectual leadership is actually aligning our tradition with the kind of status the ideological status quo that's all with the people that we've aligned ourselves to preserve our own um, our, our own uh, uh, freedoms and rights in a liberal secular context that is not a form of leadership in my view that is a form of uh, actually cowardice i'm not saying they're cowards but i'm saying we're not we're not brave enough we haven't taken that leadership with that in mind i mean how do you place uh many young muslims today they uh they have very explicitly taken progressive or liberal positions on on a on a number of issues and um uh they uh, by and large i mean it, it, there is a trend of interpreting islam according to uh, according to those liberal precepts i mean how should we treat this if this is indeed a problem Oh yeah, well that's 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 a big question. Look, there may be a position you hold that may align with something that the liberals agree to. Now that necessarily is not a problem, as long as you you you've actually been true to the Islamic tradition and you've been sincere, and that you've adopted the correct methodology to to derive a particular conclusion. Yeah, we're not saying that everything that we that we call for and stand for is always going to be against every single worldview. No, because there's some overlaps. Human beings are human beings, right? And not just human beings. I'm saying, you know, this is just the nature of, of life. Just because foundationally and philosophically you may disagree with the certain your, your, with your worldview, it doesn't mean certain products of your worldview or certain values are not going to align. They may align. But don't make them align. Be true to your tradition. So... That's one point that's very important to make. But another thing is we need to change the culture where we empower and develop Muslims to be, to be able to articulate a case for Islam intellectually and in a way that is true to the tradition, okay? And that is one of the, the greatest difficulties because we don't really have that collective narrative. At the moment, it's all about, you know, social media, people saying certain things, people writing certain things, people feeling good about themselves. Um, we don't have, there is good things, great things going on, but we don't have this collective focus of focusing on, you know, the Muslim and, 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 and many Muslims in order to you know, empower them so they understand the tradition theo-philosophically in the most coherent way, one that is based on revelation, one that is based on the idea of what does Allah want from me, one that is based on the idea of what is Allah actually saying. If we do that, then the way we articulate ourselves is going to be fundamentally different. And we will even move away from this kind of ethnocentric uh, identity version of religion. You know, know, many Muslims, sometimes we we consider Islam like some kind of 
ethnocentric cult or gang here, yeah? uh, because you know we've, we we inherited that from. Uh, I think we inherited it because of the the colonial trauma here yeah, that we went through. We need to understand that Islam is not an ethnocentric identity like that. It's not like a hat that you wear, but rather it is who you are. It's your state of being because Islam, the truth of Islam is not just an abstract proposition, like saying there is a table in front of me. Islam is far more profound than that. Islam is a form of truth, a form of knowing that changes your heart, changes what you say, and changes how you relate to yourself, how you relate to others, and how you relate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it, it changes your state of being. Yeah. So we need to understand Islam holistically that it's fundamentally, you know, a, a, a truth, a worldview that changes your state of being, how you become in the world, right? It is the lens in which allows you to understand yourself and others and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And from the perspective of truth and that would affect how you relate to yourself and others in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so this is very important to understand and once we have the understanding then when, then when we try to engage in these cases then we're going to refer to revelation to find out what exactly Allah wants from us in this particular context now I don't claim to have all the answers but when it comes to for example dealing with liberalism or secularism you know islam has a certain position on this and yes fundamentally from a philosophical perspective and even from in many cases an ethical perspective there are things that are that that that, that we're not going to agree with the liberals and with the secularists and we need to be strong with that and we need to and we need to believe that what we have is is true and we know it's true and that it's actually good for them if we have that perspective then, then, then the 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 tables would 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 turn. Why? Because we're gonna we're gonna be actually calling them to the truth rather than the other way around. That we don't have to have a bunch of social media influencers and and scholars and leaders saying, "Oh yeah, Islam's compatible with this and Islam's compatible compatible with that." Don't get me wrong. I know why they're doing that because you know you know you know many Muslims they're sincere and they want to live nicely with people for sure, and that's the case anyway. We do, but that doesn't now mean you change your tradition. It doesn't mean now you're trying to skew, you know, what God wants from you and, and make it instead of asking the question what Allah wants from you, you know, what does what does the liberal want from you? <laughs> right? What you need to do is be true to your tradition and and over time you'll get more respect anyway. How do you how do you see the Muslim Ummah today and, and uh how and its 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 position vis a vis this this project of yours? Oh, well, it, d- it depends what part of the Ummah you're looking at, really. <laughs> like, for example, a lot, a lot of Muslims in, in university, from my experience, a lot of them, you know, alhamdulillah, they have a, a good grounding of the Islamic worldview. They understand what Allah wants from them. Others, unfortunately, that they're lost. Uh, they're totally lost in, by adopting false secular and liberal presuppositions. A lot of them are lost in a postmodernist uh, narrative as well. Um, and but we have to intellectually and emotionally empathize that people, you know, youth, students, young folk, even like relatively young folk, anyone between the age of like 18 to 45, you know, actually all human beings, we have a need to belong, we have a need to feel certain. And this is what creates the social norm. And that need to belong sometimes if we can't find that belonging from our, our 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 immediate group the muslim community we may try and belong to the more dominant group which would be the secular uh, environment 
And what happens is that you may have to suspend your own truth in order to do that. The other form of influence is a, a type that you have a, a need to feel certain. By the way, these are called normative social influence and um, informational social influence. So the one about feeling certain, if you can't get that certainty from your, from your immediate group, like the Muslim community, then what happens is you're trying to find that certainty from the most dominant group, which may be the secular group. Um, and you might just believe in what they believe in just by virtue of their size and their dominance. And this is actually social psychology for you. So we have to appreciate that. And we as a Muslim community need to provide that certainty for our youth based on revelation, based on what God wants from us. And we need to provide that sense of belonging as well at the same time. So if our youth look a little bit different, we speak a bit different. And maybe they have, you know, certain questions that we haven't heard before. We should still bring them into the arms of mercy and 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 and, 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 and into the community, and 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 get and make them feel that sense of belonging, in a way that's in line with the prophetic approach and the prophetic mercy and prophetic sunnah. If we don't do that, this is why a lot of our youth, in many cases, have, you know, adopted maybe postmodernism or liberalism or secular philosophies, is because. It's psychologically driven. With all due respect, these these ideas are not truthful. You know, you could philosophically unpack them in, in a few minutes, but they they adopt them just because of that need to belong and that need to feel certain. And sometimes the community has let them down. But obviously, we we have our reasons for that as well. You know, we don't have strong political power. We don't have, um, you know, that type of influence, especially in our current context. But in appreciating that as long as we understand what the problem is, and now we can now create individuals to be a little bit more brave, um, intellectually and emotionally and philosophically and spiritually brave, and create that sense of belonging for people and that create that sense of certainty. Do you think that the countercurrent is strong enough in the Muslim community towards this liberalisation project? It's not good to have this kind of social media uh, uh, narrative where you have like four or five really good speakers or scholars um, that's not enough because you know that's not the real world we need lots more youth lots more indi- lots more individuals who have this correct mindset to create that form of leadership um, and we should stop chasing vanity metrics you know we we're starting to believe now as a as a community that People with the most followers or the most likes have made an impact, but they haven't. Numbers don't necessarily translate as impact. Like there's someone who may have a YouTube channel that has 500,000 people, but someone might have a YouTube channel with 500 people, but that person with 500 people, his followers are, 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 are of the caliber that will make such a, an impact that outweighs all the other followers that the other person has. We should stop following vanity metrics. And that's why I'm a bit sad that a lot of you know of you know organizations, maybe Masajid or institutes or whatever, they let people sit on their platform just because they're popular. Wallahi, I find that really problematic. Now, obviously, if your main objective is marketing and the person also fulfills other criteria that they're, they're suitable to be in that place, no problem. I agree. You can you could have that as a criterion, as a as part of your criteria. But usually, you know, I ask the question sometimes. If this person didn't have popularity, would you even allow him to sit on your platform? No. I, someone has even said no to me. 
because they don't articulate, they don't know the Islamic tradition properly, they, they're not a good role model, I wouldn't want my son to be like this person. So why do you give them platform? Because they're popular. We're, we're, ch- we've, we're chasing, you know, this kind of, it's vanity metrics, bro. That's what it is. It's, I know it's, not, it's a bit off topic, but it's, 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 it's something that we need to address as well, that we should stop chasing vanity metrics. And the real legacy, if we, if we have ikhlas, we want to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We'll do things that will make a, have a huge impact. Just like the Prophet ﷺ when he developed the Sahaba, you know, Madi bin Jabal and Musab ibn Umar when they went to the respective areas. One, one, one Sahabi, one companion, what an impact did they make? It's because they were refined. You know, you, are you going to compare uh, Muadi bin Jamal and Musab bin Umar to like 500,000 people on YouTube? It's, no, you can't even compare. They're not even worth the dust on their sandal. <laughs> yeah. But, but look, at, look, look, at, look at the impact that was made. Look at the impact. Now, I want to ask all these people, who would you rather have now? Would you rather have a million followers on Facebook, a million followers on Twitter, and a million followers on YouTube? Or would you have, or rather have um, Muadi bin Jabal with you? I know what my answer is going to be. But what is everyone else's answer going to be? And unfortunately, many of us subconsciously and even consciously were chasing these vanity, vanity metrics because we live in the age of the celebration of the ego, unfortunately. Now, why am I saying this? Because I've suffered from it. That's why as well. I'm not a perfect boy in any shape or form. I've gone through that journey. And, you know, when you get older and you have that realization, you want to do things that are far more meaningful and impactful. Yeah. And this is so important for us as a community that we need to really wake up. You know how many times I've tried to, I've stopped myself from going public just to expose the disaster of what's happening on social media and, and the ego and the egocentrism and the, and, and you know what? I tell you, I, I describe it in this way. We've become like a rocking chair. A rocking chair does a hell of a lot of moving, but it's not going anywhere. You know, we need to, make an impact and that requires a lot of self-reflection on, on asking ourselves what does Allah want from me what does Allah really want from me what is the right thing to do is it to you know get a thousand likes or is it to get that one person who I know is going to have such a massive impact in the future sometimes focusing on one or two people and spending 10 years on them could be the best thing you've ever done because what they would achieve would be greater than anybody else because you're not chasing vanity metrics. You're, you're ch- chasing the pleasure of Allah. You're ch- chasing a meaningful impact. Just like what the Prophet ﷺ did. Uh, a lot of Muslims today, they, they study the humanities, the social sciences, philosophy, politics, international relations. And, and often uh, when they study those subjects, they, uh, they embrace aspects of those subjects and, and start to uh, adopt the the liberal precepts that undergird these these uh, subjects. Now, of course, we we want to encourage Muslims to study and study deeply. You you've just talked about your uh, study of philosophy and how that's impacted on your on your da'wah. But how do we prevent Muslims from when they study these subjects from uh, from embracing those ideas and ideals that undergird those subject matters? This is one of the most important questions you've raised today. That I, t- I, I tell you why, I, t- I tell you why, um, and it, you know, you should include this. I entered academia when I was 33, I believe. So what I mean by academia is postgraduate level. So I did a postgraduate certificate in philosophy. Then I 
did my master's in philosophy. Then I'm continuing now postgraduate research in philosophy. So I'm about to finish my third postgrad in philosophy. When I was doing this, I did think to myself that if I was 10 years younger, I would have totally lost the plot. Because academia in some way, you know, sometimes we believe is thoroughly objective and, you know, we almost deify the, the, the academy. Yeah? But we have to realize that people have their own presuppositions and their own intuitions and their own assumptions about the world, which permeate the academic discourse. Like, for example, skepticism. And don't get me wrong, we should have a healthy skepticism to a degree, but, but you know, skepticism in general pervades and also philosophical naturalism, right? Which is the view that there is no God. There is the view that there is no supernatural. There's the view that there is no non-physical and there's the view that everything could be explained in reference to physical processes. That pervades a lot in academia. And those things are, they're, they're presuppositions, right? And they need to be unpacked and they can be challenged. But sometimes that doesn't happen a lot because you're there to learn and you're, you're listening to what people tell you. And you have to be intellectually brave to start answering these questions. I remember one of my seminar classes, we were talking about truth. And I was like, well, if our story is like, you know, the Darwinian mechanism, then how can we value truth? Right. How can, you know, it could be that we survived, uh, by following falsehood, right? Because natural selection is not about the truth, the, tr the ones who know the truth survive, it's the, the survival of the fitness, fittest, right? Survival and reproduction, and it could be, and there's many thought experiments to show that if you followed falsity, it could lead to your survival. For example, if a jungle man goes into a forest and basically says that all fungi are poisonous, he's gonna survive. But he's also, adopted a false a falsehood which is that all fungi are poisonous because it's not true that all fungi are poisonous because shiitake mushrooms and uh, white button mushrooms are actually nutritious and very good for you right but that falsehood has led him to survive so it can it, so it could be that so i had this obviously there's much more to unpack concerning uh, this type of philosophy and this type of idea but I, I was trying to challenge and you can see that they didn't provide a really good answer now, if I didn't probe further deliberately because I'm gonna, I wanted to finish my course. <laughs> yeah, but the point is, they, you know, there are some, and, and this is not for all lecturers. This is not for all aspects of the academia. I'm not saying that they're a monolith, but generally speaking, you have these presuppositions, and I could have been really lost. So my advice is, when Muslims enter philosophy specifically, I usually give four or five pieces of advice. Number one. You have to be praying five times a day, man. You have to have some kind of connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is so important for your tarbiyah, for your outlook, for your connection, yeah, and your, your spiritual well-being. Number two, you have to have an understanding of Islamic aqidah. You have to. You have to. Because you're going to be engaging with ideas that are going to make you think, which is not necessarily a bad thing. They're going to basically try and make you think out of the box. They're going to be challenging. If you don't have a basic but fundamental understanding of your worldview, it's going to completely destroy you. It could completely destroy you. Number three, you have to have the right intention. What are you there in the first place? 
you're there just to sound good and articulate yourself some in, in a Churchillian way. <laughs> you know, you're there for a reason that you know that these type of philosophies provide a challenge to Islam and maybe Allah would give you the opportunity and, and have mercy on you so he could elevate you so you could be able to call to his way. Have the right intention, yeah? And the fourth one was, you have to be connected to mainstream Islamic scholarship because you're going to have questions you can't answer. You're not perfect. We all have epistemic limitations. We don't, we don't know everything and we can't know everything. So you need to ask those who know and be connected to those who know. If you have those four things in place, inshallah, it's going to be a liberating process for you. If you don't, and even if your, your, your children don't, do not take them. Do not allow them to do it. Because it'll fundamentally, you're going to throw them into the ocean and they don't know how to swim. Um, and that is so important because so many people, like the other day I was in someone's house. Um, his son is literally an apostate. He got a first class from doing some kind of degree or an undergrad degree. And, you know, he was almost deifying the academia. And I had to like basically make him realize what the hell are you talking about? And what I realized with this person was they didn't have a grounding in the Islamic faith. They didn't have a grounding in the Islamic aqidah. They didn't even have a grounding of Islamic spirituality. And, they, and, you know, Muslims, you know, our, our parents, you know, they're sincere and they think if they go, if they get good education in the West, it's going to be good for them Islamically as well, which, they, which I think is so bizarre because you're throwing them into the lion's den, right? And, they, and you're throwing them there naked and with, with blood coming out of their wounds. They're going to be eaten alive. They're going to be savaged. Yeah? And we need to realize as parents that we need to empower our children to become leaders. So when they enter these environments, they take the good, absolutely. They do educate themselves, but they, they have a good grounding of the truth. And everything they learn is filtered through the, through the perspective of the truth, which is Islam. You should be okay, inshallah. But many Muslims don't follow those four points and they enter into philosophy. And what do they end up doing? They end up adopting philosophical naturalism as a premise, which is, you know, totally kufr, <laughs> you know, in, in many cases. They, they, they end up adopting certain ideas that are antithetical to the Islamic tradition. And that's not their fault because maybe they were sincere. Maybe, and, and you know, Muslims are sincere. We have big hearts, you know, very emotional. But, and, and, and they think, oh, yeah, but I'm convinced this is the truth. And they may think it's the truth because that's all they know. And that's why it's very dangerous to go there without a strong understanding. And when you do have a relatively grounded understanding in your tradition i i can almost guarantee you it would be a huge iman boost wallahi when i was there and we were discussing these things i i was like they're so close yet so far that they were like they're missing allah's names and attributes they're missing understanding who allah is you know and i was just thinking to myself oh my god they just they just they just they just don't get it right and it creates an, then you become empathic, thinking, oh my God, my job is to show them. And my job is to try and awaken the truth within them because they have a fitra and there's something in there that we need to uncloud because their fitra has been clouded. And our job is to uncloud the fitra to awaken the truth within. That Allah is the truth and He's worthy of our love, devotion, adoration, and worship and obedience. And that we must express all acts of worship to Him alone. They need that. And I'm telling you, it was so empowering. I'm so blessed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he just allowed me to go a bit later into academia. And I was like, wow. I was like, subhanallah. 
literally it was such an iman boost you know and you know you have to think about it. even when i was studying this when i answered the question the first question you asked me about the idea of freedom i remember asking the academic and i said to him you know uh, is we're having this discussion is freedom intrinsic or is it uh, instrumental and he was like you know freedom as an idea he was so you know i think he was talking about philosophers saying that is it's intrinsic some of them yeah or at least majority of them and obviously this is different from freedom of speech this was the idea of freedom itself and he was like saying and I said like well how, how, how do you prove that so well if you have to prove it then it's not intrinsic and I said okay maybe that's the wrong question I said how do you ground that and you know what he said to me uh, in, he said our intuitions mm-hmm. well like and then and then and then muslims are afraid to talk about things like the fitra muslims are afraid to talk about you know our beliefs which are not only rational but intuitive as well and you, if you unpack a lot of western philosophy you could reduce it to a <laughs> to an intuition <laughs> i know that sounds really funny yeah but the point here is you know obviously not everything that is intuitive is true of course but you know with things like this that are shaping discourse and political ideas is based on justifying an intuition right and you know sometimes we we deify the academia no in some sense or like you know it's this objective thing it's not they're human beings that have their own presuppositions and world views right isn't there a, a, a an additional point here which is i mean you often find that traditional minded muslims who who've had a good upbringing and and they've gone to the madrasa and they studied islam and even if they pray five times a day are still susceptible to uh the these these values and and susceptible to these ideas when they study philosophy or politics or the other social sciences um and 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 it, and it seems to me that the work you you do in your organization does which is to directly tackle those those uh, those ideas those concepts so that uh, you 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 create a different frame of thinking and and you you that's a good question you know what yeah yeah i i i agree and disagree what we do is we contemporize our classical tradition because we're standing on the shoulders of giants yeah let's be honest when these people who study in madrasa and they learn aqeedah and all of these ideas they learn it in a way that i think is a little bit not conducive to the modern world I don't mean that in a modernist sense. I mean that in a sense they don't conceptualize it; they memorize it. So when you memorize Islamic thought and principles, it's very hard for you to apply it in contexts that you haven't experienced before. So if these learned people who are close to Allah, they have knowledge of, of the aqidah. If they still get troubled when they enter into philosophy, my I, my view is they haven't studied Islam properly. I know that sounds a bit arrogant but I want you to appreciate from the point of view of being able to conceptualize the Islamic aqidah being able to conceptualize the Islamic principles because if you've understood something properly it means you're, you're able to apply that principle idea to unprecedented phenomena and the reason that maybe we have become relatively successful in this is because we've just learned to contemporize what the giants of the past have told us and that requires a hell of a lot of experience and getting into the trenches and learning from your mistakes 
And that's why a lot of these thinkers or muftis or whoever, wherever they go to, whatever institution they go to, they need to have an approach that's not based on memorization, but based on conceptualization. Because that is the true approach of learning that you do memorize, but you also conceptualize to the degree that you can apply those ideas to unprecedented phenomena. Uh, we, were, we went to Medina and there was a bunch around 30 or 40 Medina students. We were teaching them ba- uh, basic proof of God and this, that and the other. And they said, you know, we don't really learn it this way. Nothing you said is totally against what we've learned, but we don't learn it this way. And I said, this, 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 we're not, you are more knowledgeable than us. We've, Allah has just blessed us in some ways. Or Allah that we can contemporize what you've learned. And because we've tried to conceptualize it. But the learning method of not only in Medina, but maybe in some of the Darul Ulooms, a lot of it is memorization based or uh, following someone's statement. But the irony is the scholar that we refer to, whether it's Al-Ghazali, whether it's Ibn Taymiyyah, whether it's Razi, Imam Razi, whether it's An-Nawi, whoever it is, when we mention their statements and we believe them to be like a source of reference for our tradition, we need to appreciate their methodology. And their methodology wasn't only referencing people's statements. <laughs> their methodology was referencing people's statements because they had epistemic humility. They were humble from the point of view. They realized that they, they had giants before them and they want to see their insights. But their methodology was what? What does Allah want from me? What is Allah saying to me in my context in a way that is in line with what Allah says and what his messenger says? Sallallahu And that's what we need to do today. And, and, a, and a great example of this is I was asked a question by a sister on email. She attended one of our webinars, I think, on the argument from dependency, which is also known as the argument from contingency. And she said, oh, you know, some people have said that you are deviants and you're, you, you, you're, you're denying Allah's attributes and you're saying this and that and the other. And I answered the question and she totally agreed. And I think she was very apologetic and she was like, now I totally understand. But what came out from, of, of the discussion was this, that people may learn medieval books in the Islamic tradition, and they may talk about a certain topic, or they may attack a certain topic. And then what, they haven't conceptualized what was actually happening in that book, or what was said in that book. But what they do is when they hear something that may sound similar to the object of attack, they would attack it in the same way, although it's not the same thing, right? And that shows that they didn't have the ability to contemporize what they learned from that book. Because if they really learnt, understood what they learned from that book, they would never have gone down the argument from contingency. Because this argument is actually creed neutral. The Ashaira talked about this, the Athiris talked about this, and the Maturidis talked about this. Even when they spoke about issues concerning wajib al-wujud, the necessary existing being, and mumkin al-wujud, the, the, the possibly existing. This was, obviously there were different conceptions of the argument. Generally speaking, they all agreed with this perspective. But the argument that that, that sister had was based on someone's kind of, you know, he read probably a medieval book translated into English. And, you know, uh, that book was probably gunning down people that sounded a little bit philosophical. And because we sounded a little bit philosophical, therefore he says that we're, we're not Islamic. But then when I broke down the ideas conceptually and unraveled them and unpacked them, it, it liberated her, you see. So from that perspective, this was a contemporary example today 
of showing that we just memorize and we don't conceptualize. We should actually do both. Um, so I think that's how I'd address your question is that we need a big andragogical or I mean, that's the wrong word to use or pedagogical approach to our learning is because when I, for example, when you go to Darul Ulum, then you look at the syllabus or the syllabi, you're like, wow, there's some deep stuff there. They do balaga, they do rhetoric, they do logic, they do this, that, and the other. They have the tools to annihilate atheism in a minute, yeah? But where are they? <laughs> it's because it's, it's a memorization-based culture, not a conceptualization-based one. You need both. And that's why we have the, the giants before us. That's what we have Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyum al-Jawziyah. We have uh, Ibn Qayyum al-Jawziyah. You have uh, Al-Ghazali. You have Razi. You have others. And they're all greats in their own domain and, and with general and specific issues. So and why is that the case? Because they didn't just memorize. They also conceptualized. They understood what is Allah saying? What is the principle here? What does Allah want from me? Yeah. And that culture needs to be adopted in our educational um, establishments in the Muslim community. Um, otherwise, uh, we're just going to be going around in circles. Brother Hamza Zortes, uh, that was a fascinating interview. And, and really, we could have gone on for uh, another two hours, I believe. Um, alhamdulillah, really, your, uh, your thoughts today have been, um, have been fascinating. And, and uh, I'm sure our listeners will have a lot of feedback on, um, on uh, the ideas that you raised today and i think we've been through we've really discussed a lot today and may allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you and um, allow you to continue with uh, your great work that you and the sapiens institute are doing jazakallah khair inshallah may allah bless you habib okay fair may allah bless you